All right, everybody, welcome to the uh, June 22nd edition of Cascadian Views. At the moment, it's, it's uh, just Chris and I. We expect Dan to be joining us shortly. He's having some uh, technolog technological issues. Uh, excuse me for being unable to speak. I'm a little bit sick today. Uh, hopefully, I'll keep that under control. How are you, Chris? I'm good. I'm good. But um, as we kind of mentioned offline, I have been out of town for most of a week, so... I'm I'm going to be more shocked and amazed at the news than <laughs> bringing news of my own. Yeah, we. Uh, I guess we'll we'll start off with a goodie. Daniel is in the process of rebooting, so I'm sure he'll tell us the house is burning. But uh, according to Trump, we were about ten minutes away from war with Iran earlier. Uh, I, I guess he called it off the last minute when he realized it would kill 150 people. That's according to him. So you can take that with as big a grain of salt as you want? <laughs> yeah, so if, uh, you know, even secondhand, I've managed to pick up parts of this story, and as I understand it, that mean and awful John Bolton almost got us in the war. Trump asked his generals what their plan was. They said they didn't have one, and he was so shocked on our behalf that he saved us. Is that the narrative? Uh, well, also, he wants you to stop being mean to John Bolton when you tell that narrative. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't get that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he, he put out a statement in defense of John Bolton saying that his opinion of John Bolton's is the only one that uh, actually matters. So <laughs> everybody should stop it. Yeah, no, it was a glorious clusterfuck. Uh, I have no doubt that there was something going on. I, I don't believe for a second that the president was only informed would kill 150 people when he was in the situation room because otherwise that just proves this whole uh they're hiding things from me thing that he hates yeah it's just weird in general right i mean it's like uh <laughs> everything he says about it is totally implausible based on actual military procedure and based on the fact that we know he lies about everything all the time <laughs> yeah the um the Iranians also kind of came back at this a little bit, that apparently there was a, a manned U.S. plane that violated their airspace, or so they claim, uh, as well, and that they chose to shoot down the unmanned drone to unmanned drone to specifically like keep the lid on things. Hmm. The uh, the drumbeat of war with Iran has definitely been picking up. The Saudis have been joining in with it as well. Uh, Iran doesn't seem all that interested in containing tensions. They're going to breeze through. In fact, by the time you hear this uh, podcast, they will breeze through the uranium enrichment limits that were previously agreed to in the international plan, the international plan that was, you know, torn up by the United States, so it doesn't apply anymore. It's still being considered something of a provocative act and one that Europe would very much not want them to take. Right. Uh, but it, as far as I know, they said they were going to hit that limit today, uh, Saturday, June 22nd. So, you know, not looking good towards the keeping people from shooting at you. No, it also strikes me that this is especially weird because this is like a military engagement that both Saudi Arabia and Israel would agree on. Yeah, in fact, Saudi Arabia kind of wants this to happen at this point. They're they're beating the drums, perhaps even more strongly than Bolton is. 
So in the realm of speculation, what do you what do you think Trump's likely actual attitude toward it is? I mean, he did scrap the agreement. That always struck me as more of a Obama did it. Also, I don't like it. Well, therefore, it must be destroyed. Yeah, no, that's fair. Also, we got a Dan. In fact, we have visual on a Dan. Video of me for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Go. Welcome. Uh, we were just discussing the uh, possible war with Iran and whether or not we were as close to it as Trump wants us to think we are. I'm trying to, well, I'm trying to think what he gets from faking it i don't know i mean i feel like he's actually legit got brain worms that are you know one minute telling him that yeah let's start a war and the next wait it might be bad no that's that's true but i think he's i I think he's trying to look reasonable, I think, by pulling him out. But And I just made this point to, to Chris, but if they really did not tell him that there would be 150 casualties until like they were in the Situation Room waiting on the go-no-go no go order, uh, that really just kind of reinforces the point of them hiding things from him, I think. Yeah. And it, it strikes me as something he wouldn't want to air out in public, if that were the case. Also, you kind of wouldn't want to keep those people working for you. Yeah, true that. Uh, we also noted, if you want to weigh in on this at all, how it uh, it seems like Saudi Arabia is really uh, kind of gun and ho for this nearly as much as, as we are, if not more. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also touched on the fact that Iran, uh, as of today, at some point, is blowing past their uh, uranium enrichment allowances under the international agreement that as far as I'm aware, no longer exists. So, I mean, that's not really uh, their bad, per se, but it also definitely does not help tensions in the area. No, I think that's probably inevitable since uh, last year when the agreement was, you know, withdrawn from by the United States. That's, you know, if they're not getting the benefits of being a part of it anymore. And I think, at least initially, some of the other states were holding to it but uh i think it's only after a certain point oh yeah exactly i mean if you're a, a company based out of germany but you have substantial business in the united states you guess what you have to abide by the united states sanctions like yeah exactly money at all transits the united states you have to abide by yeah. united states sanctions and good luck in payment processing that is wholly contained to the european union yeah and there's just not that kind not that significant a benefit to a company like that you know to be had from working in Iran compared to you know the cost of cutting yourself off from you know participation in the American economy I wouldn't even say participation just transiting the yeah. American economy is enough to trigger it exactly and we are the center you know if you want to get from one one spoke through a hub to the other spoke that hub is most likely the United States of America. So, so, so I, what I was asking when we found Dan again, which is good. I'm yeah. Glad. <laughs> glad to be back. <laughs> you know what, what we think Trump's real attitude toward all this might be, because he 
did withdraw from the agreement, but I never really got the sense that he had it in for Iran specifically. He just doesn't like international agreements and he doesn't like anything Obama did. Yeah. That's that's been my going assumption, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I think Iran's been a pretty big boogeyman for him though. Like he he doesn't want to lose anybody. He hates the negative press. It it gets under his skin way more than it does anybody who is remotely serious. Um and and he wants to eliminate the Iranian threat, but I don't think he wants to risk anything. There has to be no chance of failure, no chance of ugly pictures, no chance of caskets. Uh, I mean, to be perfectly fair, he's pretty much the uh, epitome of what Clinton was accused of, the uh, the cruise missile military, where right. you know, just launch a missile at it and call it good. Right. Yeah, I, I think... I mean, I, I'm initially inclined to agree with, you know, Chris's assessment of, you know, where Trump is at and what his motivations are. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's also a, a case to be made that Iran does loom pretty heavily in a lot of conservative circles. He's got some very close advisors who have been fanatically set on the idea of uh, not just, uh, you know, punishing Iran or, you know, obsessed with their Iran's nuclear capacity, but, you know, actually overturning the government there. That's kind of been John Bolton's obsession for over a decade now. I mean, so I, I realize that there's, there's problems with the idea of, of nation building and whatnot, but if we're getting a little concerned that Saudi Arabia is getting a bit too, you know, terror happy and a little bit too, you know, big for its britches, it strikes me as an ideal case for building up Iran as a, a regional counterweight. Like if you had a, a modernized Iran, which Iran seems kind of willing to to do. I mean, they're not overly attached to even the Ayatollahs that much anymore. Um, right. Iran could be a very willing partner in, in bringing them into the modern age and setting this up as some sort of way to not like challenge Saudi Arabia, but you know, give them a, a natural kind of balancing point in the region so they're not just running a giant hegemony operation. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the whole idea of the uh, JCPOA under Obama was that they were going to not just protect the other states from you know the possibility of a nuclear attack by Iran or at least being put under you know some kind of nuclear domination from Iran, but also that it would you know strengthen the hand of those more reformist elements in the country and uh, maybe sideline the more aggressive and more hostile elements in their I mean, society. It, it did work. The The guy who is now president of Iran ran on the nuclear deal. That was his campaign right there. Yeah. Uh, that was exactly what he brought to voters. And mm -hmm. they elected him. I, I, Iran does not have a free democracy by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. the, the Council of Clerics gets to decide candidates. They can eliminate people from the ballot. But unlike a lot of other, you know, asshole countries in that region of the world, nobody is like stuffing ballot boxes. They get to vote. It's just who they get to vote for is pretty tightly controlled. You know, and, and this guy went to the public with the nuclear deal. He was their chief negotiator on it. He, this was his plan, and the voters rewarded him. I mean, 
the Iranian public seems perfectly willing to engage on the world stage as partners in things like this. I mean, more so than even our country. We elected a guy on the platform of trashing NATO. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I think that was the fallout from, you know, even a year ago, I think we could probably see that coming, was that uh, this really hampers the ability of the United States to enter into any kind of agreement with, you know, a foreign power that, you know, we don't already have an absolute level of trust with. Because, yeah, the, our political system is so unpredictable and so prone to just dramatic shifts that, you know, you know one, one day you'll have Obama making agreements and then the next day you'll have a complete, I, I try not to be too pejorative here, but just the complete opposite of everything that Obama was, uh, tearing everything down just for the sake of doing it. Yeah, for the for spite. Yeah. Uh, I guess we'll move on from that then. The uh, the other biggie in terms of national policy, although it's not the biggest national story, uh, was the president has threatened a massive crackdown uh, by ICE, deporting millions of immigrants. Uh, despite the fact that I don't believe there are millions of immigrants eligible for deportation. Uh, but also, he almost immediately backed down on that and uh, put a two-week time limit on it to get Democrats to fix immigration law. By fix immigration law, I mean make it Trumpy. Yeah. So, don't see that happening. Well, sure. <laughs> I'm trying to. I mean, of course they're not going to do it. That's that would be horrible. That would be the end of the party. I think if they did something like that. But. Yeah, we I mean, say I'm, that I'm, a lot these days, though, don't we? We do, because I think we're in a pretty precarious place, honestly. Yeah. You know, but yeah, I mean, what what are we good for if we do something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, is there really the infrastructure in place that he could actually go ahead and deport millions of people? If I don't uh, think there's even millions of people eligible. Yeah, or, <laughs> if they could find them. But, you yeah. know, I think the heads of the agencies themselves have kind of come, you know, basically said, like, we couldn't do this. Yeah. So there it is. <laughs> He's, you know, kind of spouting off, you know, saying, making threats about things that he can't actually do. And then turning around with, you know, some kind of half-assed attempt to save face and say, well, I'll do it if I don't get, you know, Trumpy immigration laws in two weeks. So I don't know what he's going to say then. Just uh, say that he did it and hope that everyone who's willing to vote for him doesn't know better. Or move on to a new crisis for a while before cycling back to this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, get something. Yes. Cycle these days. La launch, launch the missiles for real. And yeah. <sighs> uh, I, I guess we'll move on from policy then to just news, uh, specifically around the president, a rather prominent columnist, um, you might call her a journalist, although I, I don't know if she uses that term, uh, but author and columnist uh, E. Jean Carroll has accused the president, um, as well as I believe another man, but the big newsmaker is the president of sexually assaulting her uh, in the 90s after they met uh, 
in a grocery store, and he wanted help buying a, a gift for a woman. Which is, you know, how you meet somebody like this. Uh, the president has strongly denied the the accusations, but uh, it really just fits into a pattern, and it's mm-hmm. keeping it in the headlines. I think he, he just he can't get away from this. Yeah, well, because it, it's pretty likely that he did a lot of it to yeah. her and lots of other women. Right. You know, I guess the only thing that keeps more from coming out is, you know, the possibility that, uh, you know, anyone who does, you know, make some kind of al- accusation like this or allegation is going to be exposed to just unlimited harassment from his supporters. And the uh, the way she describes it is basically he goes up to her and grabs her by the pussy. Yeah. Uh, as he said, he does. She talks about him just, you know, grabbing her in the crotch and poking around and whatnot with a, a firm grip. It's a little bit strange. I don't imagine foreplay uh, like that ever happening and feeling natural. Uh, that's just creepy as fuck. Uh, I guess we'll we'll talk about Biden as well. Um, he had, <laughs> speaking of creepy, <laughs> yes, speaking of creepy, uh, he had some comments about needing to work together, and he specifically brought up how he was able to work together civilly with segregationists in the the Senate. Uh, this caused quite a bit of an uproar. Uh, kind of spearheaded by by Booker and Harris, they really jumped on this pretty early. Uh, it's been a huge news cycle killer. Uh, I don't know how impactful it's going to be on Biden as a whole. The probably strangest thing about this, from my perspective, is the Congressional Black Caucus, the CBC, full-on circled the wagons around Biden. You have John Lewis going on TV talking about all the segregationists he worked with in the Senate and how you do have to be civil and how Biden was completely right on this. Uh, and that just seems very much at odds from what we see. And I, I do have to mention it's primarily something we see driven over the Internet. So I don't know how that skews things. But uh, mm-hmm. among young people, these comments are being taken as, as pretty much nuclear. Uh, a terrible look for Biden. And I, I, I think I basically agree with that. Uh, I, I usually don't give much credence to the, the rage you know, machine as it goes on. I like right. to think I, I decide who to hate based on my own feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, even if he might be right on some sort of tactical level, it really misses the moment, I think. You don't have to say that out loud. Like, you yeah. could have used one of many, many other examples. Right. <laughs> it, and he seems to have a talent <laughs> for doing this, for, like, going... Interestingly, I mean, it doesn't seem to have, I guess you could say perhaps it's capping his appeal. It certainly doesn't seem to be reducing his appeal as such, but yeah. But he does yeah. go, he's like, Let, let's see how, let's see if I can antagonize all women. Oh, that didn't work. If anything, <laughs> it, 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 might be, it might be driving his appeal up. There was a, a survey that was released just a couple days ago, and it was interesting in the fact that it, it asked people who they thought should drop out of the race, uh, as well as who they were most excited for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
Biden actually was had the most people excited for his candidacy. Fifty one percent of Democrats were actually excited that Biden was in the field. Seriously. Yes. Well actually excited. Not just like he's a good candidate, not I, I like him here. They were excited for him to be running. Fifty one percent. His numbers yeah. seem bulletproof. Uh, at least compared to the shit coming out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's, I, I kind of, I don't know about, I can't speak for who's excited for Biden, but I think a lot of it ties in at least, I, I think I can link the two angles that we've got here. I mean, it's you know, a little bit dog bites man that he's getting a lot of defense from this, from the CBC, but you get down to it, you look into the demographics of Biden's support. It skews older, it skews African American, and it skews female. I mean, these, it's the same base of support that the Congressional Black Caucus is also, you know, pretty heavily dependent on. So, yeah, you've got Clyburn defending him, you've got John Lewis defending him, you know, not just the old folks, though, but the next generation, too. Stacey Abrams today was coming out and, you know, saying that, you know, she didn't have a problem with what Biden said and was basically defending him, too. Uh, what I, it comes back to for me a little bit, I mean, this is a population that does not get shocked when a white Democrat says something racially hinky. You know, they, they know that, you know, th- th- these are folks that are used to picking their battles, used to taking what they can get. Uh, I mean, I think about, you know, the, you know, an exchange in the fourth season of The Wire when uh, Tommy Carcetti is arguing with his black campaign manager about whether or not he was actually going to vote for him. And he's, you know, getting all snippy with the guy saying, what, you're not going to vote for me because I'm a white guy? And, you know, the guy shoots back, look, I black folks have to vote for white people all the time, you know, so it has nothing to do with that. It's, you know, you're being a jerk. You know, it, that's, you know, that's, I think, what it comes back to. I mean, this is a population that's used to taking what they can get and knows that, you know, on some level they have to be pragmatic and that, you know, ultimately they're laser focused on defeating Trump more than anything else. The CBC thinks tactically, I think, much more than really any other caucus um, out there, except for some on the right. I, I do think there's a, a bit of horse trading that we see in some of the, the right-wing caucuses on there, but the CBC is out to to maximize their power and their effectiveness, and they don't mind getting kind of dirty to do it. Yeah. And Biden and... helps them do that. And, you know, despite the, the fact that Biden may not be the most racially woke person on earth, he still, <laughs> in the end, is, is probably a, a pretty easy delivery on a lot of priorities that the CBC wants. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a big, a big part of it. You, know, you get at least stop the assault on your community that's currently coming from the executive branch and, you know, maybe the chance to make some progress. I think that's, you know, that's definitely going to be considered a fair trade. Although, you know, you'd hope that you'd hope that you could do better. And I think if one of the other candidates uh, is sufficiently impressive, uh, his support may crumble fairly quickly. I really don't know if he's got the same kind of deep ties that, you know, the Clintons did, for instance, you know, you know, Hillary Clinton didn't lose support of African-Americans right away. You know, it took some time and it really accelerated after Iowa. But, 
Yeah, it was well underway by this point in states like South Carolina that Obama was overtaking her. And so far, at least nobody else has really broken away from the pack. Yeah, in fact, Biden went to South Carolina to kind of hide from this whole controversy. Yeah. To be around people who liked him, basically. <laughs> best place to do it, man. If you got, you know, if you're saying dumb shit racially, you know, the best place you can be is to have Jim Clyburn giving you a hug. Yeah. Really, really pretty perfect on that. Uh, that has not pulled off the guns uh, of either Bucker or Harris, though. They seem pretty set on this. And both of them, I think, think this might be their issue to take it to Biden on. You know, we're we're saying candidates need to find some separation, and this might be the place they've chosen to plant their flag. Mm-hmm. Kind of ironic that two of them chose this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, in terms of timing, too, it'll be interesting because they will actually have a chance in just a few days if right. they really do want to take a public run at this. They'll have their opportunity. Booker seems to be more, uh, have more of a fire under his backside on this. I, I think possibly because Harris is the consensus choice among the CBC or Biden's mm-hmm. VP pick. So she can't be quite as scorched earth. Uh, Right. But according to Politico, actually, Biden called Booker to try and like bury the hatchet on this whole thing and the phone call just made everything. Oh. There's a there's a front page article in Politico uh, about it today that was just amusing comedy of errors, pretty much. That does sound juicy. Yeah. Um If you're Booker though, I mean you're your only hope really is a breakout in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't happen, your whole candidacy is over right then. We yeah. talked about this like last week or the week before too, but I think Booker has one of the the better claims to the Obama legacy if he's able to claw it away from Biden. Like Biden's the default on that, but I think Booker has an easier carry of getting people to the point where they think he's Obama's successor, really anybody in the field. Just he has the whole hopey, changey, what can government do for you? I'm a Boy mm-hmm. Scout uh, attitude that Obama really had and really sold really well. And I think, I think if Booker is able to pry the Obama legacy away from Biden, he's in a better place. And if he's able to do it over something as high profile as this, where it will actually get into the news cycle and, and get down to you know the voters he has to persuade, all the better for, for Booker. Yeah. I think you're right. Narratively, he's you know definitely more similar than Harris is certainly in terms of you know their theory of the case, their approach to politics. Uh, yeah, Harris um, is kind of scary. I, I mean, not in a bad way. I, I kind of yeah. like my my politician scary. Especially she's partisan. Yeah, yeah, and she's also a former prosecutor. She has an edge to her. Booker is he's fucking Mister Rogers. He was the guy who was literally like running into burning burning buildings as mayor of Newark to drag <laughs> people out. Right. He was a dude walking around with uh, the fucking tool belt and fixing the plumbing in row houses and shit. Like he, he is Mister Fucking Rogers. Yeah. Way more than Harris is. She is. She is not. No. I mean, you can tell she's a fighter and she's in your corner and she has all that. But Booker is a fucking Boy Scout, and I, I think that sells the Obama legacy a lot more. Obama was not scary. Yeah. Oh, he was anti-scary. I mean, that was kind of the whole appeal. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Uh, I, I guess we'll we'll go international. I suppose. Um, 
Dan, you wanted to talk about oh. Brexit and everything going on there. Uh, just to catch people up to where we are, and then I'll let uh, Dan take over. The uh, UK does not have a presidential system. The leader of the government is simply the leader of the largest party, or the party that can command a majority, the House of Commons. Uh, at the moment, that's the Conservative Party. They uh, are, are pretty much eating themselves from the inside out, and as part of that, they sacrifice their leader. Uh, so they have to choose a new one. This will be the new leader of the UK. They don't need to have an election for that because of the parliamentary system. Although they'll probably end up having an election anyway, especially yeah. with Boris. Yeah, uh, yeah go, go ahead, Dan. I'll throw right in there. I mean, yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, they've had a, they've had a balloting. Well, I guess first to describe the process. Like you said, the Conservative Party needs to elect their leader first. Theresa May is... Prime Minister until you know someone else is you know elected leader of the party and is able to step step in and you know take control of the government and they've had about a half a dozen people in the mix uh, some of them much more aggressively pro Brexit than you know Boris Johnson himself who is yeah hard to believe but absolutely I mean because. I think the perception around Johnson is that yes, he is you know, has some ideological priors in this direction, but he's mostly an opportunist and you know a bit of a clown. You know how seriously can you take the guy? I mean, I threw up the little gif of him, you know, looking like a moron on a zip line, uh, but that's his persona. That's what he's all about. He and had I, a line during the Brexit campaign about us, uh, not us, the UK sending. 122 million pounds or whatever a week to the yeah. EU. He was sued for that because it's not even remotely true and his defense is politicians have to lie. It's not a legal issue. Get off my lawn. <laughs> and won the case. Yeah. He, he, he didn't even try to defend the statement. He was just like, I'm a politician. I lied. This is part of it. If you restrict that, you, that's not your place, courts. That's a political question. Get the fuck out of here. Exactly. I mean, he's, you know, I think a lot of people see a pretty close analog between him and Trump. I think he's probably a little bit less malicious, but, you know, he's definitely indifferent to causing an awful lot of suffering and uh, absolutely indifferent to telling the truth. You know, he kind of helped lie them into Brexit in the first place. He was a big factor in the campaign. Uh, and yeah, his persona is just completely ridiculous. I'm, you know, looking at this picture of him right now from a Guardian article, and he looks. Uh, uh, I, I wouldn't leave the house looking like this at least in this picture, and I'm kind of a slob. So <laughs> the institutional conservative party like absolutely hates this guy too. Absolutely. Um, for a long time, they kept kicking him out of various like party stations and whatnot, and he, he really clawed his way back up by getting himself elected mayor of London. Yeah, or the party had no choice but to accept him. <laughs> right. Uh, actually, I was you know reading up on his early career, and John Major just you know hated his guts and kept trying to get him kicked off of ballots whenever he was uh, trying to run for you know whether seats in the European Parliament or you know in the House of Commons. But yeah, he eventually got himself elected to Parliament, and uh, then you know was elected Mayor of London in the you know late aughts. You know, for the duration of, uh, I think, really, as things were about to change over from, you know, the Labour government under Blair and Brown, uh, as, you know, Cameron was about to take over. But, yeah, the, the process that the Conservatives have adopted for choosing their new leader is new. 
much like uh, Labour did when uh, Corbyn was elected in 2015. They're now throwing it to a popular vote after you know a series of selections made by the members of Parliament who are members of the Conservative Party. And yeah, this is the one place where it was expected that Johnson could be stopped, that you know there are enough people who don't like him, don't want to be serving under him, that might throw in for someone else or put him up against someone who could beat him. But he's just romped at every stage. I mean, he has led, I think he started out in the very first rounds with over a third of support within the party and quickly crested 40 and in the last round finally topped 50%. There's even some speculation that the other oh. candidate, who was his successor as uh, foreign secretary, which is kind of their equivalent of secretary of state, may stand down and not force it to an election at all. I, I believe he actually topped 50 percent in the fourth round. Yeah. Like, well, that let me quick pull it up, because I think that was the last time that they actually voted, because that was at the point where the they fifth had the candidates set. It down to two, they eliminated the last one there. OK. So yeah, his uh, opponent in uh, what's going to be the next round of selection, uh, just a moment here, I have that right in front of me, but it was his successor as foreign secretary, who is, again, let me look him up, because <laughs> he's not going to be prime minister, uh, Jeremy Hunt. Yeah, I, so... I, it's not necessarily guaranteed Boris could either. Um, right. So they, they've lost a by-election. Yes. They're probably losing another MP, the one who uh, put that Greenpeace activist in chokehold. Yep. Already, their uh, their majority is down to three. That right. one will make it two, uh, and a Boris Johnson-led Conservative Party will not command all the Conservative MPs in the populist vote. Exactly, because a number of them had already departed the party uh, over again the internal strife over Brexit, joining this independent group. So they're depend, you know, if he is elected by the members of the Conservative Party, which it gets pointed out a lot, but I think it's you know kind of shocking that this is you know the main way that you know the next prime minister is most likely to be determined. It's going to be election you know by members of the party. So about a hundred thousand you know people in the UK uh, total get to vote in this election, and they're overwhelmingly white. Who's paying member of a party to vote in the primary? Exactly. Overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly them. old. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, because, you know, Labour's had the same process in place, but they weren't electing the head of the government at that time. They were electing, you know, what was going to be the leader of the opposition. So the ramifications were not so striking that this was going to be how it was going to work. And yeah, yet here we are. And yeah, the, then assuming that he does you know, win the vote of the party members, like you've said, he's got to form a government and that's going to involve not just you know, keeping together you know, in sufficient numbers of the conservative party that they're within reach, but also maintaining their agreement with the uh, Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland to not topple their government, not join with the other opposition parties to end the government, which the on a hard Brexit is, uh... course, yeah. They're, they're pretty important when the, the Brexit agreement and like 90% of the negotiations have to do with Ireland. Yeah. The Irish border and maintaining the customs union on the island of Ireland so that, you know, border checkpoints don't return and the troubles and all that shit that everybody will be having flashbacks to. 
non-negotiable stuff for any Irish politician, basically. <laughs> so, good luck. Um, and then, hmm. yeah, I was listening to another podcast talking among some other uh, experts of English politics, and, or I shouldn't say English. You, you Other experts? Ex- None of us are experts on yeah. English politics. Right, 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 right. Uh, but... You know, the question was like, so what's going to happen if it does end up going to a general election? And all these experts were like, don't fucking ask me. I've got no clue. You know, this, you know, both of the major parties. Yeah. Labor should have this running away. And they are like losing ground to the conservatives. They're completely incoherent. And it's probably not going to get better because, you know, presumably with the new prime minister, at least you might have, you know, kind of a brief honeymoon, like, okay, new guy, he's going to get Brexit through, you know, Theresa May was flopping and flailing, but this guy's really, you know, this is what he wants. You know, Theresa May herself was not actually pro-Brexit before she became prime minister and, you know, accepted that that was what it was her responsibility to deliver. But, you know, he's closest thing there is in the leadership to a true believer that's going to get elected so maybe he'll get some kind of benefit of the doubt but he probably shouldn't so yeah if there is an election both the parties are in the toilet both the main parties yeah the uh the lib dems seem to be making a a roaring comeback yeah i mean the the main problem they've got is i guess the way they've been distributed they've never really been in a position to translate their level of support into you know control of the parliament or you know being yeah. at, at a fighting weight with the two inter- regional and the, the southwest of it. exactly yeah but assuming you've got you know if nigel farage is not satisfied with you know whatever's coming out of the johnson government you know you could very well have an aggressive you know further to the right challenge uh tipping the balance in all kinds of seats towards either Labour or the Liberal Democrats in places where Conservatives might ordinarily win. So, yeah, you could have a very unpopular Jeremy Corbyn suddenly becoming Prime Minister, or, you know, if the seats tipped slightly the other way, you know. Coalition deal worked out somewhere. Exactly. So, good luck figuring out what it's going to be, and, you know, good luck to everybody in the UK, because (laughs) the... I guess the most likely scenario anymore is that they proceed with just destroying their economy for no good reason. And just because that's the way the vote went two year, three years ago now, that's what you have to do it. By <laughs> knife edge. And people had no idea what they were voting on and now seem to very much be uh, having second thoughts on this. Yeah. It's great talking about the UK because it's probably the only thing that could make us feel better about the state of American politics. I seriously love it. Like their their political drama and Brexit, it's just I'm able to have a, like a a layer of insulation between me and the consequences, uh, and it's so much better than our own because of that. I, I don't get nearly as worked up about it, although I have very very strong opinions, probably yeah. stronger than I should have. Considering I do not live in the UK. Well, I guess on that front, then, we should probably come back to home and uh, get to the scary developments here in Cascadia. So, um, 
I, I come to you from Portland, Oregon, the largest city in the post-apocalyptic hellland of Oregon, uh, where we round up political prisoners at gunpoint. Uh, if you ask the Republicans, that is. That's what's going on. Uh, the Oregon Senate is at a standstill. Republicans, this is going to be a familiar tune because we covered a story very similar to this one like three months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, Oregon GOP senators have fled the state. Uh, presumably to Idaho and Nevada and whatnot. I don't imagine many of them voluntarily go to, like, California, uh, in order to prevent a cap-and-trade bill from coming to the floor. It's a uh, actually one of the better cap-and-trade bills that you could possibly see in America in the fact that it doesn't just take into account carbon use by polluters, but by industry. Uh, so you have to offset carbon that you use even that you aren't directly pumping into the atmosphere and whatnot. It's caused a, a lot of consternation among particularly loggers who, uh, you know, forgive me, but they're complaining that we don't have that many loggers in Oregon anymore because the Western Spotted Owl, so where are all these loggers that you say we're hurting? Um, but still, it's, uh, it's an incrementalist measure. It's a strong incrementalist measure, but it's an incrementalist measure, as I'm sure JJ would point out to us if we were here. Uh, mm -hmm. However, it was still a step too far from four Republicans who have left. And the, uh, the Senate president, who is a Democrat, uh, sent a request to Governor Brown to uh, activate the Oregon State Police in order to go find these Republicans and bring them in. Uh, that power comes from the Oregon State Constitution which gives the Senate president the ability to compel attendance uh, and use the police for that. Uh, they're turned into a, a little bit of a flashpoint. One of our Oregon State uh, Republican senators warned them to come heavily armed and to send bachelors, which uh, I don't take as anything other than a threat, and neither should you. Uh, the state police is currently uh, liaisoning with police forces in other states to help them, you know, accomplish this since the senators have left the state trying to get out of jurisdiction. Uh, the militia movement, the three percenters and whatnot, have offered their help to uh, Senate Republicans who have, I guess, all turned them down uh, officially, but they somehow still got an invitation to the state house and are currently there. and. The state had to close down uh, the Capitol building and the legislative building today because of the armed militia parading around out. So that's where we are. It uh, it really feels like the spark that's going to light off the powder keg, at least to me. I'm, I'm melodramatic, and I reckon probably not. But uh, this just seems like we're about to start shooting. It really does. Uh, all because you guys couldn't put your fucking asses in your seat. And yeah. Uh, the Oregonian and uh, CBS News have both pointed out that Oregon actually has a, a fairly long tradition on both sides of the aisle of doing this. Uh, going back to the 70s, uh, ever since the quorum rolls went into effect, uh, this has been a, a fairly popular tactic. Uh, although we had avoided it for a decade and a half until the Republicans did it uh, three months ago, and they promised not to do it again, and then they did it again three months ago. So. I, I feel like having a walkout supported by 
Art Militias is new, though. That definitely that seems like a bit yeah, of an escalation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. When you put a government building under siege, little bit new. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just, I, I really, yeah. I feel like we're in the nineties again. Like militias used to be a thing, and then I haven't thought about them since like middle school, and now they're a thing again. You know. At one point in this country, they, they were the driving force behind the, the Oklahoma City bombing and, and Ruby Ridge and, and Waco and all this. The, the militia movement has demonstrated the most extreme cases of domestic terrorism this country has ever seen. And they're right back at the forefront in the thick of things. And people don't seem to think this is nearly as big of a problem as they used to. I am flabbergasted. Yeah, and it's especially chilling to me the, um, you know, well, we did not ask them to be there. There just happens to be this independently organized armed militia that yeah. is there in conjunction with something our party is doing. Like that kind of layer of deniability when what you basically have is you have brown shirts for all intents yeah. and purposes. Paramilitary exactly. groups. That is exactly what that is. Uh, there's also some fines going on. Uh, it's the dumbest shit in the world. It's $500 a day, and not only that, but they're legally able to pay it with their campaign money. So, none of them are going. No way to bite them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, yeah, it's not their money. <laughs> it's, they're going to pay the like $30,000 with the money they already have in the bank account that's supposed to go for political and they're going to make even more donations when they cry about the story to right-wing media which they're already doing i mean the washington times which is a, a right-wing rag that used to be owned by a literal cult uh <laughs> has already sent me breaking news info uh about the the jackbooted tactics of governor kate brown and uh criminalizing political dissent at the end of a gun Wow. Yeah, no, they're going hard. Red State is having a field day. and I, I never thought I'd say this, but Red State has somehow gotten worse since Erickson. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how that happens, because Erickson was pretty fucking terrible. Yeah. But it's gotten even worse. It's, it's just kind of, it's a synecdoche of the conservative movement as a whole. Every time you think it, well, who could be worse than Newt fucking Gingrich? <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Oh God! Uh, yeah, there's a lot of shit that they're they're blocking. Um, part of this is a tobacco tax uh, issue as well. The Republicans are upset that their amendment to the tobacco tax got voted down. Uh, there's a bit of a problem over business tax, and we covered the business tax last time. It was what the last walkout was about, and apparently they're still not fucking happy about it. And, all that but really they have a laundry list of re reasons but really this is not the climate change uh they don't think that resource extraction industry should have to pay for their pollution um and they have a friend in rural oregonians for that you know cutting down trees has a carbon cost people we are we are literally cutting down carbon processing machines uh so that we can burn them and release all the carbon that they had acquired during their lifetime that adds carbon to the Good. atmosphere um, Great. You so we need have more to of that. cover that. Yeah, 
don't have enough carbon. Yeah. <laughs> Any sort of cap and trade plan that doesn't cover shit like that is going to fail because it, it's not even touching the, the main cause of the issue. Uh, and, you know, rural Oregonians have something of a valid point. They, they look at the, the carbon numbers coming out of China, which are incredible because China is still at this point a majority coal nation and they have a billion fucking people and they pour out a lot of greenhouse gases and they're asking why they have to pay the carbon tax when China doesn't. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, but my answer to that is we don't have time to argue anymore. <laughs> like, we're, we're fucked. We need to start doing things. It's not fair. I understand that. Ideally, China should be paying too, but they're not. And we have to do what we can. Mm -hmm. uh, just, I feel like we might have touched on this back the last time that the Oregon Senate got shut down. But what kind of quorum rules do they have? Because, I mean, it's not like four fifths, I believe. Wow, that is a crazy quorum. Because, yeah, it's not like it's a close partisan division in the Oregon Senate in either, you know, legislative Democrats chamber. Democrats have super majorities in both chambers. That is just madness. I mean, you know, back when, uh, you know, Kavanaugh was a big thing still, um, and there was a lot of kind of Westway-inspired thought, like, what if the Democrats denied a quorum? I mean, the issue there was that as soon as a Democrat was there to challenge the idea that there was quorum, then... By definition, there was enough for quorum because he had all the Republicans who were going to be there too. So, yeah, because I mean, that was just like I think fifty percent was what would have, been, would have been required at least in the U.S. Senate. So it's pretty wild that there's such a high threshold for doing business in some of these state legislatures. Yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous. Uh, it's just a way to grind the the business of the House or the Senate in this case to a halt. I mean, yeah. it's the same thing with those rules requiring, you know, two-thirds votes for taxing. Mm -hmm. Just a way to put what you want out. Yeah. Counter-majoritarianism, yeah, for sure. Now, is this, uh, is this like a filibuster thing where you could actually technically, with 50% plus one vote, abolish no, the quorum written in It's written in the, the Constitution. Oh, it's in the Constitution. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, the rules are written into the Constitution, the respect for the rules, and then the rules are set by the House at the start of session. Hmm. Typically the first thing is passed. Uh, but they don't change them year to year unless they need to add new things. You just adopt the rules. Uh, that, that's usually how it works in, in most legislative bodies. Dan, you were actually on one. Yeah, yeah. To comment. That's... Yeah, I mean, that's certainly how the U.S. Senate works. Uh, you know, they change the rules from time to time. The only, of course, they could also change them midway through, as you know, McConnell did to uh, confirm Gorsuch in 2017. Um, it, it seems like the sort of thing where, you know, we've had conversations periodically about, you know, do Democrats need to start bending the rules and playing dirty? And usually that's in the concept of, in the uh, context of things like, abolishing the filibuster or packing the Supreme Court, but also in, I think, in the context of certain cases like this where you've got, you know, a pretty significantly diminished minority of the state that is uh, blocking, you know, things that are supported by, you know, substantial majorities, do you go in and have, you know, if you've got control of the parliamentarian of, you know, that given body, say, all right, this rule is deemed to mean, uh, you know, 80% of 
you know, you know, members who are actually, you know, in the state or things like that. Exactly. In the capital or present or have given some kind of notice of their location, that kind of thing. You know, it's, you know, bending of the rules. It's, you know, teasing, torturing, you know, definitely going outside of what any kind of normal person would see as, you know, an appropriate application of the rule. But it is the kind of world that I think things are moving towards. And it's the sort of thing where if the shoe is on the other foot, what would they do? You know, would they start throwing your people in jail in order to, you know, get what they wanted passed. I, uh, like I said, I, I really feel like this is building towards something bigger. Um, and it, it, I feel like it's been doing that for a while. The militias and the paramilitary groups, the Proud Boys, I'm including yeah. that and whatnot, have really kind of made Oregon their, their proving ground for a lot of issues. It, yeah. It's fucking terrifying as a resident here. Go back to Vancouver, man. Nobody wants it. <laughs> Go to Idaho. We don't want them in Washington yeah. either. <laughs> All right, guys. That's. Uh, I think that's going to do it for us. Uh, sure. I wish JJ were here. I was going to tease him a bit. Uh, Seattle's getting slightly larger. I don't know if you guys saw that. Seattle's slightly larger. Is somebody moving there? Or? No. Uh, Snohomish County has rebranded themselves as Seattle North Country. Oh. Uh, excuse me. Seattle, North Country, True Pacific Northwest. Huh. Well, that's it's the bedroom. It's the bedroom of Seattle. So yeah, I guess so. Yeah, Fair enough. Wanting to get more uh, more tourists uh, in the area and whatnot, and branding themselves as the the rural area, the country area around uh, Seattle is what they're pushing. He has to claim Everett now. Seriously, <laughs> that's exactly what I. All those opportunities to learn. The, uh, the stereotypes of the areas around Seattle that I learned from uh, Almost Live as a child watching right. that, I wanted a chance to put them into action. Oh, yeah. All right, guys. Uh, I'll see you all next week, uh, and hopefully we'll talk about Washington fucking up for a while because uh, I hate my state right now. <laughs> we'll find a way. We'll find a way. Have a good one. All right. Next week, guys. Good night.